Swim with the dolphins. Pass. Learn a new language. Does Latin count? See the northern lights. That sounds like fun. Go on a cruise. Hard pass. Experience zero gravity. I think I'd like that. The dumbest bucket list item that I saw was try to get a security guard to follow you around. Hmm. Maybe if you put two packs of toilet paper in your cart. Now, why do we have bucket lists? Excuse me. Why do we have bucket lists? Well, it reminds us that life is about more than just living. When you're stuck at home with nothing to do for weeks on end, you feel that you're just wasting away. You're physically alive, but you don't feel alive in a deeper sense. You long for life. Now, recently we broke, my family broke the quarantine rule and we had a, a single friend over and we just had a blast. It was just so nice to talk and sit with someone even though we sat at a distance. Now, do as I say, not as I do, but this reminded me of the vibrancy of life that we can feel and when it's lacking when we don't have those things. The Apostles' Creed is actually very interested in real life, the kind of life that relates to wanting a bucket list. And that's where this last major doctrine of the Creed comes in, I believe in everlasting life. Why is this belief so important to Christianity? Well, let me tell you a couple of things right away. To say that I believe in everlasting life is not about going to heaven. That's not really the focus of the creed or everlasting life. It is, a, is it about living forever and ever? Not exactly. That's not even really focused on adding one day to the next. Even the language of everlasting life is kind of a misnomer. It doesn't really fit what the creed or scripture is talking about. Sometimes you read about eternal life. That gets us closer, but again, it's not exactly what the creed wants to communicate. There's a scholar who's written on the creed named Luke Timothy Johnson, and he says that it's important to recognize that everlasting life is not just about adding the length of days to our life. It's more about a depth and a quality to life. We think about adding another day to life as just kind of surviving one more day. But Johnson says this, survival is not salvation. Persistence in mortality is not glorification. Eternal life is not life after death. It's actually more like life beyond the grip of death itself. Now that kind of imagery of a life that is big and large and so strong that even death cannot threaten it, that is creedworthy. I want to share with you two key ideas that relate to the doctrine I believe in life everlasting. The first one I want to share is everlasting life means sharing in the divine life. Eternal life, again, is not about adding more years to your life. It's more about communing with and becoming connected to the eternal one. When ancient people talked about deities being eternal, the focus wasn't on how many years they lived. It was rather on them being immortal or invincible, unkillable, and therefore a being that is unafraid, free, and powerful. God offers to us just that kind of immortal life full of freedom, 
power, safety, security, joy, salvation, peace, forever. And he gives it to us in himself. I like the imagery that the Apostle Paul uses in the book of Colossians of salvation being hidden in Christ. Or also in Colossians, Paul talks about being transferred away from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. We're removed from death. We're removed from the grip of evil, darkness, death, sin, and transmigrated like refugees given a new home in a new land. Another, uh, uh, actually, Luke, Luke, Luke Timothy Johnson says this as well in his book on the Creed. He says, We hope that as embodied creatures and as God's people, we shall in the end reach the full sharing of God's own life that Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, has achieved. I love the way that Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to quote from the Message Bible because I feel like it really captures what it means to have this unique, immortal, powerful life, something actually that Dr. Claire talked about last week. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 15, 53 from the Message Bible. In the resurrection scheme of things, this has to happen. Everything perishable taken off the shelves and replaced by the imperishable, this mortal replaced by immortal. Then the saying will come true, death swallowed by triumphant life. Who got the last word, O death? O death, who's afraid of you now? almost gives me chills how powerful that triumphant proclamation is in this time in our lives when actually death is a big threatening beast all around us. It would be amazing to have the wisdom, hope, courage, and life to say, death, who's afraid of you now? It doesn't mean we don't take death seriously, but we put it in its proper place in the orientation of God's overall control over his world. So you might wonder, how do we get this eternal life? Well, first John talks about life being in the sun. John chapter 15 gives the image of a vine and branches. We might think of a tree and branches. And we humans are like branches meant to be connected into this great big tree of Jesus Christ, empowered, energized, uh, given photosynthetic life by the Spirit, so that we're tied into the life of God, and that's how we receive and experience eternal life. Now, this isn't just some pie-in-the-sky thing. There's another scholar named Michael Bird who explains how relevant this is for life today. He says, this is not something that is the doctrine about eternal life. This is not something to file away in your head under afterlife, next to your mental compartment for religious stuff or funeral arrangements. The terrestrial life of new creation of the future radically shapes our attempts to live in the present to fill earth with the life of heaven. I love that imagery of filling earth with the life of heaven. So first point that we've made is that eternal life is sharing in the divine life. But we can make a second point, namely that eternal life is a life that is uncorrupted and incorruptible. There is a purity to the kind of life that the New Testament talks about that is something that we yearn for and long for and that we find in Jesus Christ. There's a uh, book that I remember reading when I was in seminary about the problem of sin. 
and what sin is. And it was called not the way it's supposed to be. And that helps capture why we have such a deep longing for eternity. It's because death and sin robbed us of all of that. And we're living a less than pure life in terms of the vitality and energy and spirit of life that we're meant to live as humans. Paul talks in Romans about life in the flesh right now as a life under the tyranny of sin. Our lives are enslaved, Paul says, to sin and death, and we, therefore we live in weakness and fear. But Paul also claims that if we give ourselves over to God and Jesus Christ, then we become slaves of God, and that doesn't lead to more weakness and fear. That leads to the opposite. We can receive holiness, eternal life, righteousness. This is a paradox because slavery sounds bad, but if you enslave yourself, if you tether yourself to God, if you surrender and give everything over to God, then you're actually going to receive all these wonderful benefits of true life, eternal life, the depth and richness of everlasting life. And therefore, Christians live in hope. I remember reading a quote by C.S. Lewis when I was in college, and it really resonated with me, and you may have heard it before. Lewis writes, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical conclusion is that we were made for a different world. This reminds me, too, of the conversation that Jesus had in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. Now, he initially asks her for a drink, but in the end, he offers her drink that's going to fulfill her thirst eternally. There's something deep in us that hungers and thirsts for significance, for meaning, for life, for something deeper than just adding days on and doing work. Little things can give us some satisfaction, like food gives us satisfaction, but the woman at the well recognized that Jesus was offering something bigger, stronger, more eternal, richer, and therefore... Jesus presents this taste of life in this world. We can face death. We can face the difficulties of life knowing there's a larger reality that we've been invited into. I want to give an illustration from The Lord of the Rings. I'm sure if you haven't read it or watched it, you know something about it. There are these uh, amazing figures that are sent on this journey to save the world. The Fellowship of the Ring and the Hobbits play a central role. These kind of small creatures that are often unseen and not, not recognized, but they play an important role in this adventure story. One of the hobbits' name is Pippin, and he's worried about what this journey may bring in terms of suffering and darkness. There's been a lot of difficulties and setbacks. So he has a conversation with the sage of the group, Gandalf. Pippin says, I never thought it would end like this. And Gandalf replies, end? No, the journey doesn't end here. There's another path we all must take. The gray-rained curtain of this world rolls back and it will change to silver clouds. And then you see it. White shores beyond a far green country under a swift sunrise. It's an amazing vision and idea that I'm sure Tolkien got from scripture of eschatological hope. The idea that whatever happens in this life, suffering, even death, that's not the end. We have a greater path to walk towards this sunrise. Whatever the world throws at us, that we have a special map leading to an end where all will be made well. So, eternal life is actually our destiny as humans. I love the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 
Again, I'm going to read from the Message Bible. This is verses 17 and 18, when he's responding to critics who say that Christians are experiencing suffering in the world. How can their religion be true? Here's what he says. He says, we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside it often looks like things are falling apart, on the inside, where God is making new, not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. Paul goes on. These hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times, the lavish celebration prepared for us. There's far more here than meets the eye. The things we see now are here today, gone tomorrow, but the things we can't see now will last forever. What can't we see? We can't see the invisible hand of God working, but we also can't see that future prepared for us, and those both are things that Paul's talking about. You may have uh, heard or seen on social media that some celebrities did a uh, rendition of Imagine where they talk about imagining there's no heaven, there's no religion. Now, I think what that song at its heart is about is dreaming about a day without religious strife, but I think it would be very problematic if we imagined a, that the world would be a better place without the heavenly vision, the heavens above. The creed gives us a very clear answer about how we should view heaven. The hope of life promised by God inspires us and shows us how to live now looking ahead to that future with God. I want to illustrate the significance of this biblical vision of eternal life by quoting from St. Augustine's uh, famous book, City of God, where he's actually talking about what heaven will be like. And what I appreciate about Augustine is he doesn't portray heaven as sitting around on streets of gold, plucking harps with, you know, fat baby angels flying around us. He actually imagines a real city, but it's a city where sin has not corrupted and death has not corrupted the world and humanity. Listen to Augustine's vision. He says this, Who can measure the happiness of heaven, where no evil at all can touch us, no good will be out of reach, where life is to be one long praise extolling God, who will be all in all, where there is no weariness to call for rest, no need to call for toil, no place for any energy except to praise. In heaven, all glory will be true glory, since no one could ever err in praising too little or too much. True honor will never, be, will never be denied where due, never be given where undeserved. And since none but the worthy are permitted there, no one will have an unworthy ambition for glory. In heaven, perfect peace will reign, since nothing in ourselves or in others could disturb this peace. The promised reward of virtue will be the best and the greatest of all possible prizes. The very giver of virtue himself, God will be the source of every satisfaction, more than the heart can rightly crave, more than life and health, food and wealth, glory and honor, peace and every good, so that God may be all in all. He will be the consummation of all our desiring, the object of our unending vision, of our unvarying love, of our unwavering praise. And in the gift of vision, this response of love, this pian of praise, all alike will share as all will share in everlasting life.
Augustine paints a picture of heaven, of the city of God, of eternal life, where we'll be working, we'll be doing things, we'll be active, we'll be creating, we'll probably be learning, we'll be in conversation, in relationship, we'll be a community at work, just like we are now, but without sin holding us back. Here's how he talks about life in the city of God. The souls in bliss will still possess the freedom of will, though sin will have no power to tempt them. They will be more free than ever so free. In fact, from all delight in sinning as to find in not sinning, an unfailing source of joy. In the everlasting city, Augustine says, they'll remain each and all of us in inalienable freedom of the will, emancipating us from every evil and filling us with every good, rejoicing in the inexhaustible beatitudes of everlasting happiness unclouded by the memory of any sin or sanction suffered, yet with no forgetfulness of our redemption or any loss of gratitude for our Redeemer. That's a lot to take in, but I want what I want to communicate to you from Augustine's vision is we can believe in a utopia. God has promised it to us, and we can hope for that. We can dwell on that, not to escape into that in our minds, but to be so captured in our imagination by that bliss, by that love, by that joy that we want to make it a reality. As we say in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the vision we get from this creed of everlasting life means true freedom, true joy, true peace, true life. If we can imagine it, we can live it in small ways now and live in that hope. So, if we've already talked about, I believe in everlasting life, what's left? Well, one word sums up the creed or ends the creed, and that is, Amen. This reminds us the creed is not just words, it's not even just a statement, it's a confession. In the ancient world, the way that people made important statements was through oaths. Now, we don't really have those, we use papers, we use documents, we use signatures to ratify things that are very important to us, to put things in the public record, so to speak, to hold ourselves accountable to important things. But we still understand the concept of the oath because we do this, for example, at weddings. We give vows and we say before the public, before family, before God, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to be faithful to this person. So the creed is like a vow. It's an oath. It's a prayer. It's a confession of our faith. This reminds me of the great hero of Protestantism, Martin Luther. Martin Luther challenged what he believed was a corrupt church of his time. And he made public statements criticizing the church for being legalistic, for hypocrisy, for not focusing enough on Christ alone and one's personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In 1521, Martin Luther was called by the church to a hearing where he was expected to recant his theological statements that had created such a stir and controversy. Instead, he defended his ideas and reasserted them out loud. And at that meeting, he famously said, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Here I stand, I can do no other, 
So help me God. He believed that what he was seeing in the scriptures, what he believed was the real truth about Christian theology, was something he had to say, he couldn't recant, and it was something that he was willing to die for. He had a creed. He had a basis of truth in scripture and his understanding of scripture that he was willing to um, to boldly speak at that meeting of people that really wanted to see him uh, put in jail or even dead. The Amen of the Creed begs the question, what does your life stand for? What are you willing to die for? What truths have ultimate meaning for your life? I think of Romans chapter 3 verse Paul, verse 4, excuse me, Romans chapter 3 verse 4 where Paul says, let God be known as truth teller and every mortal a liar. What does that mean? It means that we need someone to be our pure guide for truth and really teach us what's right and wrong. It's really easy in our personal lives to get caught up in white lies and kind of just drift off the path of truth and you end up in the wrong place. And we need God, we need a compass to direct us and keep our feet on the right path. In the a book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, there is before Israel two paths laid according to God, a path towards life and a path towards death. And God calls Israel, you have to choose. You can't play both sides. You can't take po both paths at once. You can't even stand still. You have to decide which way you're going to go in life. And that same challenge is presented to us. I want to leave you in this course with not only that challenge of deciding and being convinced and living according to what you believe is the truth, an outside truth beyond your feelings, beyond your opinions, beyond the latest trends on social media, beyond what your favorite celebrity thinks or feels, towards something that has significance from ages past through the years and to now and goes beyond that into eternity. I'm going to quote a beautiful summary of the Apostles' Creed from uh, one of my friends. His name is Michael Bird. He wrote a book called What Christians Ought to Believe. That would actually make a good follow-up to this course this summer. If you want to do some reading, you could refresh yourself on the Creed by reading his book. It's meant to be kind of armchair reading, something enjoyable. Um, I'm going to read his summation of the Creed. You can tell me whether you like it or not, uh, and then uh, we'll wrap up. Here's what Bird says. The story of our faith, as the Apostles' Creed teaches us, is this. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, from whom the Son is begotten and from whom the Spirit proceeds. One God in three persons. God the Father, with the Son, and the Spirit, acting like His hands, is the creator of heaven and earth. Humanity was created to rule over God's creation, but fell into transgression and corruption. God's saving plan and promise was to rescue this world, and this rescue began with the call of Abraham and with his covenant with Israel from whom he promised deliverance would come. It is in the midst of Israel that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. His mission was to bring Israel's story to its climax and to dethrone the evil that tyrannizes the world. 
His gospel of the kingdom drew together the nucleus of a renewed Israel among his followers who would carry God's purposes forward to the ends of the earth. After Jesus came to Jerusalem for one fateful visit, he suffered under the injustice of Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Jesus' death was an atonement for sins. His resurrection on the third day was the start of the new creation, and his ascension into heaven marked the beginning of a new divine order over the whole world. The church now has the duty of living in the power of the Holy Spirit to declare the forgiveness of sins and the restoration of all things. We do this until the glorious day when Jesus returns from heaven to put the world to rights, to judge the living and the dead, to rescue his people, and to bring them into the new heavens and new earth. The goal of our hope is not a disembodied bliss in heaven, but rather the resurrection of the body and life everlasting in God's new world. This is the Christian story, the church's story, the story we live by, the story which gets our amen. This is the story we sing about and proclaim until such a time when God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell in them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. That, my Theo friends, is worthy of an amen. I challenge you to spend time at the end of this course, but also in the summer and in the days, months, and years to come to ponder where you stand in terms of thinking about the truth of the world. What is the world all about? What is my life about? And how do I fit into that? There are many good and, uh, and, and, and beneficial things in the world, but Christianity presents a particular way of looking at the world of embracing this one God in three persons to find the true meaning of our life. I encourage you to continue to read scripture, continue to read about Christianity, and then to invest in the church and in your faith. Thank you.